serving as our temporary session along with Adam from Redeemer in Newport. And Doug, we're very happy that you're here this morning. Thank you for bringing God's Word. And no one objects if I move this from the far right over to the center. I know it is the political season, but uh, we'll be in the center. Uh, I invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles to Romans 8 and have that open before you. And while you do that, let me extend you greetings from Aliso Creek Church in Aliso Viejo, where I am the assistant pastor. And also want to say congratulations on the calling of a wonderful pastor. And I think that is just hugely evident about God's blessing. I'm able from the sidelines to watch what God is doing here. And it is so exciting to see God working in your midst. And I, I know that he will bless you going forward because this is a gospel preaching and gospel teaching church. And God always blesses the gospel. In fact, the passage we have before us, as you've heard, is really about the Apostle Paul trying to persuade us of the gospel and the relationship between that and our suffering. Um, now, I can't persuade you of that, but he can through the Holy Spirit working with the Word. But we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us do that. So would you pray with me? Father, we ask you to send your Holy Spirit that you would enter into all of the dark places of our hearts, places where we hide our fears and our anxieties and our doubts, and that you would turn on the lights in our hearts, that you would illuminate the Word to us today. You'd shine the glory of the Lord Jesus into our hearts. We pray that, that your Spirit would persuade us and convince us so that we can say with the Apostle Paul, I am sure. Lord, would you do your work today? For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, I have a confession to make. When I was in high school, there were only really three classes I took that I learned things that I still retain and use to this day. Driver's training, typing, and speech and debate. I don't remember very much about um, calculus and quadratic equations and the poetry of Robert Frost and the Ming Dynasty and all that stuff, but I still drive, I still type, and I still give speeches. And in the summer before ninth grade, it was my mother who pushed me, really forced me, to go take a speech class because she wanted me to get over my fear of public speaking. So five days a week, four hours a day, I went to speech class. And the, the teacher was the speech and debate coach for the high school. So the kind of speeches that he taught us that we gave for four hours a day, terrorizing me thoroughly, uh, were mainly persuasive speeches, speeches designed to persuade. So we studied the arts of persuasion, the techniques to move the needle in somebody's heart to get them to agree with you. And I was fascinated by that and uh, still to this day use a lot of what I learned in the work that I do, not only as a preacher but also as a lawyer. Now, you may think that there's certainly certain occupations where you can understand a public speaker would need to know how to persuade. Uh, preachers and lawyers, salespeople, maybe business people who have to give a pitch, politicians. But I'd like to suggest to you that you use the same techniques to persuade all the time. And if you don't believe me, today during the coffee hour, engage in a conversation with somebody about some subject that you know that maybe you don't see completely eye to eye on, and notice the techniques that you're using to persuade, notice the techniques that they use. Now let me suggest that you stay off the topic of politics. We don't want anybody to get bloodied here. This is church. 
but not only do we persuade one another, we're always at work trying to persuade ourselves. You know those voices in your head that you hear? It's perfectly normal. Psychologists said we all engage in self-talk. And there are voices in your head where you're always at work trying to persuade yourself that you're, that you're competent, that you're talented enough to face the challenge of the day, or maybe that you're beautiful or attractive enough, uh, svelte and, and uh, slim. I gave up trying to convince myself of that years ago. But uh, maybe you're trying to persuade yourself that you're significant or secure, or that, that you're loved, even though maybe some of the voices around you make you feel otherwise. We're constantly talking to ourselves, constantly trying to persuade ourselves, constantly trying to move the needle in our own hearts. And the Apostle is trying to do something very similar today. He wants to get into those voices in your head, that dialogue that's going on, and persuade you woo you about the truth of the gospel, especially as it pertains to your suffering. And if you're not convinced that that's what he's really up to, take a look at verse 38 where he writes, For I am sure. Now the word translated sure there in the original is, is really to, from the word to persuade. So he's really saying, I am persuaded, I am convinced. I have done my homework, I've looked at the evidence, I've, I've done the math, and, and he's inviting you and me to, to look over his shoulder, as it were, and check his math, to, and see if we're not persuaded, like he is, that the gospel is true, and it's good, and it's beautiful, and it's for you. Now, uh, what is the context? Why is he doing this? Well, let's back up. Uh, this is such a beloved text that we often disconnect it from everything that has gone before. The Apostle doesn't disconnect it. If you look at verse 31, he says, What then shall we say to these things? What are these things? Well, these things are probably everything that the Apostle has been writing in the book of Romans, going back at least to chapter 5, where he was talking about the benefits of justification and the decisive new thing that has happened in your life. You have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. You have received the Holy Spirit. You have peace with God. You have the peace of God. You have been taken out of Adam. You're no longer identified with Adam. You've been placed into Christ. You're identified with Christ. You are out of membership in this present age, and you're now part of the age to come. And all that is true except for the fact that even though you're part of the age to come, you don't live there. You still live in this age, which means that your body still ages, you still get sick, break down, you have problems, sometimes we have tragedies, we struggle, we have relational distress, all kinds of stuff that creates a tension between the already and the not yet. And what happens to Christians when that happens? When you're standing over the graveside of somebody that you love, maybe a mother or father, or you're at a hospital bedside of someone you love and you see that life ebbing away, or you have suffered a severe financial reversal and you're wondering how you're going to pay for the rent and put food on the table for the next six months, doubts creep in. Suffering Christians start to ask questions. In fact, people who may have no interest in theology, interesting how they become keenly theological when bad stuff happens. They start asking, 
Why did this happen? Is God really there? Is anybody home? Does he care? Does he still love me? And the Apostle Paul wants to answer all of those questions, yes, 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 and yes. Because his first century audience was suffering terribly a kind of persecution. Um, now, Paul this morning has moved in this text from purely rational theological argumentation. He's moved from the big picture about salvation that he gives in verses 18 through 25, what God is doing in the world, this, this kind of peek behind the curtains of what the whole plan of redemption is. Now he's moving to persuasion. He's using the arts of rhetoric in very powerful, very eloquent ways to move you emotionally, to move the needle in your heart. He wants to win you. One Christian uh, pastor used to always say that a pastor has only two jobs. To convince unbelievers that they're lost and to convince believers that they're saved. And that's what Paul is doing here. Now, he wants you to walk out of this morning saying, I am sure of the gospel. I am sure I'm saved. I'm sure about God's favor and love toward me. And in order to persuade us, he uses seven rhetorical questions. Now, you can actually boil them down to four. Uh, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, the great uh, PCA expositor, said that these are really unanswerable questions. Well, they're really not, because each of them has an implied answer. Who can be against us? No one. Who can bring a charge against us? No one. Who can condemn us? No one. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? No one. Well, these questions and these answers are what the Apostle wants to use to persuade you and me this morning. But they're also questions and answers that he wants to, give, to use to give you and me the tools to persuade ourselves. Because when doubts come, when tough times come, we need to return to this place and we need to reapply the truth of the gospel and God's love to us. Because at those times we ask, is it true that God loves me? We need to come right back here and say, yes, I'm sure. So let's think through these questions. First, take a look at verse 31. What does Paul say? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, if you've read any of the Apostle Paul, you know he is a realist. He doesn't think that life is a bed of roses, that God is not going to take us home to heaven on flowery beds of ease. He knows that living in this fallen world is going to be fraught with problems. In fact, the Apostle had more troubles in his life than you and I will ever have, most likely. Now, um, he also knows that Jesus promised us that in this life we will have tribulations. Life is tough, life is hard, even for the best of us. And Paul even names some of these troubles in verse 35, things that he had personally experienced. He talks about tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. These are all sorts of oppositions that you and I know. Some of you may have been wrestling with opposition this week of yourself, of your own sins, as God is shining the light into your heart and helping you to see and you don't like the picture of the sin that is still there, and you're struggling with that sin, and you're, maybe you feel like the Apostle Paul crying out, you know, oh, who will save me from this body of death? How long will I have to wrestle with these sins? Some of you, like Paul's readers, may know opposition for the sake of the gospel. Some of you may know opposition from someone close to you, 
maybe within your office or even within your home, who has no kind word for you and ridicules you and challenges your integrity and opposes you at every step. Some of you may have actually known the opposition of the devil, and so you're wrestling not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. So for many of us, this is not just pious Bible talk. This is where we live. And some of you know this opposition, and Paul knows that, and that's why he names it. And, and part of what he wants to tell you is that no adversary, not yourself, not your boss, not some cancer, not the world, no force, no adversary is of any account if God is for you. That's why he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, how do you know that? The Scots always like to say, how do I know that I know? How can I be sure that I'm sure? Well, what piece of evidence would you point to to verify that God is for you? What does Paul say? Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's the proof. God didn't spare his own son. And it's an echo, isn't it, of Genesis 22. You'll remember that... Uh, Abraham was uh, prepared to plunge the knife into his only son. It's really not his only son, it's his, he'll say Ishmael, but at least his unique son, his special son, the son of the promise. And at the last minute, God had the holy angel yell, Stop! But God didn't spare his son, Jesus, as he hangs between heaven and hell. And at three o'clock in the afternoon, he can't take it anymore. He is separated from his father for the first time in eternity. And he is incurring the wrath of hell on the cross. And he cries out. It's the first time he never uses the term father. He says, my God, my God, why have you deserted me? And why does the father not spare his own son? He delivered him up for us all. He took the punishment that we deserve, as we've heard already today in our pre-sermon service, because he loved us. Do you remember that great passage in John 17 where Jesus, it's his high priestly prayer, and he is praying to the Father. In, and in John 17, 23, he prays that the world may know that you, Father, sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Underline that in your Bible and in your heart. He loved you even as he loved his Son. Can you imagine God the Father loves you even as he loves his incarnate Son? That, to me, blows my mind. So if you have any doubt this morning, if God is for you, if God loves you, if you want to know how much God loves you, all you and I need to do is take our heart to the cross and park it there for a while and meditate upon that and think about that. You say, yeah, you know, I, I believe all that. I believe that my whole life, but you know... I'm really going through some tough stuff. I don't get how that, what's the cash value of that to what I'm going through today? Well, look what the Apostle says in verse 32. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul's happy logic is 
God did the greatest thing, the greatest thing imaginable, the greatest thing in the history of the universe that has ever happened or will ever happen. And he did it for you. Isn't he going to do the lesser thing? So Paul's really saying, dude, think about it. He did this for you, this great thing. Isn't he going to do the lesser thing? Figure it out. It's as if a billionaire bequeaths to his son and daughter a billion dollars, and then the son says, oh, and by the way, can I borrow 50 cents to feed the parking meter? Is he going to really begrudge that? Of course not. Of course not. That's the apostle's point. Whatever grace you need to, to sustain you, God has it for you. Sustaining grace, persevering grace, you name it. God will provide all things, Paul says, all things that you need. Now, John Piper says this. I like how he says it. He says, Surely, if he would not spare his son one stroke, one tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery, it can never be imagined that he ever should, after this, deny or withhold from his people, for whose sakes all this was suffered, any mercies, any comforts, any privilege, spiritual or temporal, which is good for them. And I want to say this, that in your or my darkest hours, in your blackest nights, in those times when sorrow and tribulation may overwhelm you, if not today, there may come a time in your life, and your very soul feels weighed down, and, and, and you feel as if God is not hearing your cries and your prayers, you are still never where the Lord Jesus was, because He stood there, He hung there alone. And even when God meets out his disciplinary measures against his people, it's always mitigated by the Lord Jesus standing in between. We never get what we deserve, do we? Because he stood there for us alone. And I also want to say this to you and, and to me. It's one of the great solemnities, one of the great ironies of the faith that we will one day, when we get to, to heaven by God's grace, probably meet, eventually, everyone that is there. You will never meet anyone who has been forsaken by God, except one, Jesus Christ. You take your hearts to the cross and camp there a while. Paul asks a second question, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect. Who can bring a charge against us? Is there someone out there that might accuse us? Well, of course there is. We all know that if we know our Bible. Satan, that's his job. The book of Revelation calls him the accuser of the brethren. And you remember he accused Job to God. He accused Joshua the high priest, Zechariah 3. He accuses you and me. And he has a lot of evidence to work with, doesn't he? He's got a thick file. At least he does on me. Maybe he does on you too. Um, and that's his job. And, and, and the fact of the matter is, not only Satan, but our own consciences seek to condemn us. Look at what the Apostle also says. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, God's chosen one? It is God who justifies. Now, why did Paul choose those words? Why does he, why does he bring up the subject of election? I mean, why doesn't he say, um, you know... Uh, who shall bring any charge against those who, who have placed their faith in Christ? Why bring up election and predestination? Because when you're feeling guilty over your sin, and you're, you're, you're prone to doubt your faith in Christ, and you, and you think, you know, 
I thought I was a believer. Maybe I'm really not. How could a believer do that, that I just did? And if your faith rests upon such a shaky, insecure foundation as your choice for God, then you have a very shaky foundation, don't you? Because you can click deselect and opt out of that faith too. And your, your, your assurance goes right out the window. And he brings up election because he reminds you that the root cause of your salvation is that God chose you. The reason you believed in Christ is because God first chose you. Knowing that you're saved because God first chose you in spite of your sin is essential to battling guilt. It means that no one can produce any new evidence to get God to change his mind. He already knew all about you. The sins that you've already committed. The sins that you will commit. And he chose you from before the foundation of the world anyway. That's what the Apostle's getting at. And he wants you to see that this is all of God. If you look at the earlier verses in chapter 8, beginning in verse 28 and, and then continuing, he has these, this golden chain, these five links, the golden chain of salvation that, be, that, that begins with God's choice and his calling and ends in glory. And it's all of God. God will hold on to you and keep you, and he assures you, in verse 28, that whatever is coming into your life has first passed through the will of God, so that nothing can happen to you that isn't going to be used by God for your good. And then he says, notice that Christ is at the right hand of God. This speaks of Christ's sovereignty and dominion. It's an echo of, of Psalm 110. It reminds us, doesn't it, that Christ is now ruling and reigning over the whole universe. Now, it's one thing for somebody to be for you, but maybe they don't have the power to do anything to help you. He wants you to see that Christ not only is for you, God is not only for you, but Christ has all the power in the universe. He's ruling and reigning over every molecule in this universe and also for you. And Paul is saying, you know, you, you have all these fears. You fear condemnation. You fear what people might do to you. Um, you fear sickness. But the one who saved you is sovereign in his dominion over all things, including all the things that you worry about. Nothing will come into your life that God has not decreed and that he will use for your best. And then Paul wants to assure you that your justification rests on a solid legal footing that cannot be attacked because he knows if you think that your justification, your being right with God, is, is you're just getting off the hook, that God just kind of forgave and forgot, you're going to know that you're still guilty, that, that it hasn't really been dealt with. And you're going to have a lack of assurance in your soul. So he is explaining these pleas. He's, he's giving us the solid foundation. Look at what he says. He says, for example, look at who's pleading your case. Satan may come before God to bring a charge against you, but look at verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Christ is our defense attorney. He rises in court to plead his merits on your behalf. He moves to dismiss the charges against you on the grounds that here are my hands and the blood-soaked hands and the nails. I took that penalty already. And God then can reply, motion to dismiss granted, and he says to Satan or whoever is accusing you, how dare you bring a charge against one of those whom I have chosen when my son has already paid the price. If I didn't forgive them, it would be unjust to my son. It would be saying that his death wasn't enough. And I can't ever do that. And this also is someone that I have chosen. So get out of my courtroom, Satan. Who can bring a charge against you? No one. Every, I like what John Calvin says. He says, The first and chief consolation of the godly in adversity is to be persuaded for certain of the fatherly kindness of God. Well, his next question, verse 34, who is to condemn? Well, maybe it's not possible for Satan or somebody to bring a legal charge against us, but maybe it's possible for someone nonetheless to, to condemn us, someone else. Maybe those voices rattling around in your head, maybe the voice of some parent from 20 years ago or maybe 60 years ago, stupid, not pretty enough, not good enough. That voice is still rattling around, still condemning you. Maybe it's the voice of a spouse who divorced you with an umbilical divorce and, and you wondered about your own worth. Maybe it's a, a boss or co-worker who says, you have no value. Paul wants you to hear Jesus in that inner dialogue, in that conversation, telling you there is no condemnation. Who is to condemn, is what he says. In other words, who's to condemn that matters? If God has justified us, if he has forgiven us, nobody that matters can bring any charge against us. It's as if the U.S. Supreme Court issued a unanimous opinion, a resounding opinion, affirming you and justifying you and, and, and saying you're not guilty, and then some pipsqueak, two-bit lawyer from Barstow says, oh, I beg to differ. Uh, and, you know, we think, well, quite frankly, who are you? I don't care what opinion you've got. That's the point. But maybe it's our own hearts that condemn us, because we know the sins that reside there, and, and, and maybe we've even sinned this morning. Our hearts may be shouting a condemnation so loud that it drowns out Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does Paul say? Where does he take us? He takes us to the cross. He says, you go to Jesus. Which really brings us to the last question, which is the sum really of all of the questions, isn't it? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And this is really, after all, the main point. This is what we want to know. He lists a lot of kinds of suffering. Is it possible that suffering could separate us from God's love? That's what we want to know. Does this suffering mean that God has abandoned me? If I'm thinking that, you know, it's just, it's just more than I can bear. Why is God allowing this to happen? I thought God loved me. He must not love me. Is it possible as we go through heartbreak and pain, as our bodies break down, and as emotionally we're, and mentally we seem to be you know, losing our, 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 our grasp on things and struggles over all is it possible that God really doesn't love me? Is it possible that my own sin may separate me from God's love? And God is shouting here in verse 37, No! 
in all these things, in all these suffering things, we're more than conquerors to him who loved us. And he piles up in verse 35 a list of seven potential separators. Seven, the number of completeness. It isn't exhaustive, but it stands for all the kinds of potential separators that could theoretically exist or actually exist anywhere in the universe at any time. Tribulation, distress, persecution. It refers to physical and verbal abuse. We suffer because of Christ. Famine and nakedness refers to loss of material wealth or possessions. Dangers refers to dangers Christians are exposed to because they're Christians mostly. And even speaks of the sword. Uh, Christians can be executed as martyrs. And he says nothing can separate us from God's love. In fact, when we really get it into our heads, the depth and the breadth of God's love, we see that that love calls us, sustains us, and holds on to us forever. And then Paul wraps up, and it gets even more amazing. He says we're super conquerors. Three amazing things about this verse I want you to see. First, he tells us that though we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered, we're more than conquerors. Sheep that conquer is, of course, a ridiculous image, and it's intended to say that we conquer not by our own strength, but by the grace of God. The images that were conquerors through Christ, and we read in Revelation 5, 5, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. We conquer because we're in Christ, and he conquered. Second, notice that he does not say conquerors, but more than conquerors. Our victory is described as not an ordinary victory. Now, the phrase more than conquerors in the original is really one word with two parts that you'll probably recognize. One of them is the word nikao. From, you, you, you've heard Nike. Nike brands borrows that. You know, if you're wearing Nike brand, I guess you're a conqueror, you're a winner. And then hooper, which means more than. It's or to a superlative de degree. So he says that we are super conquerors. When a baseball team wins a baseball game, it's a, it's a victory. But when they win game seven in the World Series and the confetti flows and the parades march, it's a super victory. It's a decisive victory. That is what he's getting at. Third thing I want you to notice about 37 is what Paul is saying is that we are super conquerors not despite these trials and dangers, but in them. Sometimes people say, God help me endure difficult trials. And Paul is saying, praise God, that's great. But I'm really saying here something a little bit more. Or sometimes people say, you know, I've been through some really tough stuff and it's maybe a better, stronger person. What doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Paul says, praise God, that's great. I'm really saying something a little bit more here, though. And that little bit more is really a lot more. He is saying that your super conquer is not despite or because of these things, but in them. What does that mean? In what sense? How can people who are despised and rejected and troubled, persecuted, exposed to famine, nakedness, danger, and so forth, how can such people be thought to be overcomers at all, far less super conquerors? What then is the victory? He is saying this, that for those who place their trust in Christ, every single trial is an instrument of God's grace in which you are displayed as more than a conqueror because you continue to maintain your faith in Christ by God's grace despite the trial. 
What does John say in 1 John 5, 4? For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith unites us to the conqueror, Jesus Christ. Do you get it? Faith is the victory. By God's grace, through his strength. You conquer through your faith, by God's grace, trusting in Christ during the trial, knowing that he knows what he's doing. When you trust Christ even though you're hurting, you're a super conqueror. When you trust Christ even though you don't have any idea why this is happening, and you wonder what possible good can come out of this. We have some good friends, members of, of a sister church in Yorba Linda, whose daughter, 14-year-old beloved daughter, acquired encephalitis, a viral infection of the brain that has left her severely atrophied and she can't walk or talk. And they're asking themselves, where is the good in that? Well, when you trust that God knows what he's doing, even in those situations, you and I are more than conquerors. When you trust Christ even though you're afraid and you have doubts and you have questions, that's the victory. And the victory of faith that glorifies God. John Piper says, The aim of all our endurances is that Christ be seen and savored in the world as the glorious God. That's mind-boggling, and the Apostle knew that from his own personal experience. Well, there's one final thing he says here. He wants us to know that even supernatural or spiritual powers and persons cannot separate us from God's love. He's told us that no trial or tribulation or earthly person or problem can separate us from the love of God. Then in verses 38 and 39, he wants us to know that also no spiritual, no supernatural, no supertemporal person or power, no created thing, whether it's in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible, can separate you from God's love. And with some of the most beautiful prose in all of Scripture, he lists these ten separators and he dismisses each one. Not death, not life. Not angels, not demons, not the present, not even the future, not any power, not height, not depth. Well, Paul says to you and me, I want you to understand that even the unseen demons from hell, if they all assembled on you and attacked you like a swarm of bees all at once, they cannot separate you from God's love. And then he ransacks his vocabulary to try to come up with some other things that might potentially separate you, and he comes up empty, you can't think of any other thing, and he says, or anything else in all creation. So because we live in and through Jesus, because we know him, but more importantly because he knows us, because we've grasped him, but more because he's grasped hold of us and will not let us go. There is nothing that can separate us from Christ's love. And when you and I come to our dying day, and for some of us that might be relatively near, for some very far, but whatever, we need to know, is it really possible that death cannot separate us from God's love? Do you really believe that? Paul says he's persuaded, he's convinced, he is sure that nothing can separate you from God's love. I'd like to ask you what, do you, what do you say? Are you persuaded? Am I? That what Paul says is true. If you are, I'd like you to join with me in saying out loud these final verses in 38 and 39. If, you don't, if you're not persuaded, we will pray for you. Don't say these. But if you are, let's say them together so loudly that they can hear us over at Island's Restaurant. 
I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, please persuade us. Drive out all of our fears and anxieties and distractions and buts and whats and all the rest that we use to argue with you and if need be, slay us, cut us up, get us into the very places, get into those dark recesses in our hearts and in my heart where, where we have doubt and we have fear and we have wonder. And then just overwhelm us with the gospel, with your love, a love that will not let us go. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.